the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time now for a smart plane talk regarding politics, Israel, and the law. This is the Victory Hour with Andrew Parker of Parker Daniels Keyboard. Wise counsel, winning results. Now, here's your host, Andrew Parker. I'm impressed with my attorney, Bernie. I'm impressed with his influential friends. He's got very big connections, and I follow his directions. Bernie it's Sunday, 4 o'clock, and what does that mean? Well, it means it's the best hour in radio of the week. It is the victory hour, and I'm Andrew Parker. And once again this week, we bring you only the best. The best in uh, policy discussion, debate on the issues of Politics, Israel, and the law. We talk each week, politics, Israel, and the law. And this week is no different. And I know you know that because you listen week to week and uh, coast to coast, whether you're live streaming or listening live, 1280 AM, The Patriot, 4 to 5 every Sunday, and 6 to 7 on replay every Sunday night on Freedom 1570. But if you miss us, you go to the Andrew Parker podcast and every Monday they come out and there are over 300 shows now that we have podcasts going on seven years of the show. And I thank you all very much for listening in each week. This week, uh, our discussion of policy continues. You know, last week we had Democratic Senator Tina Smith on the show this week. We have Democratic Congressman from the 3rd Congressional District, Dean Phillips. And as you have heard me say often, as goes the 3rd Congressional District, goes the state of Minnesota. I have generally had that view, and I, I don't mean who wins or loses. I mean who outperforms, because If the Republicans get, I would say, 45% of the vote in the third, uh, whether they win or not, uh, as relates to the congressional seat, uh, they will do pretty well statewide. And that just hasn't happened in some, you know, in some time. And in large part because uh, the weight is being carried for the Democratic Party by a very good candidate that they have running in the 3rd Congressional District, and that is Dean Phillips. Uh, he, uh, he matches the district well. If you have met him, you know what I say, that he is such a likable guy and somebody that it's hard not to vote for, frankly. Now, Dean and I, to be fair and uh, transparent, go way back. I mean, we do probably... Geez, 25 years, my, my son and daughter are 26 and 27 now. So it's got to be about that long a time uh, that we've known each other and known each other quite well. 
We uh, agree on a number of things. We disagree on a number of things. And we're going to talk about some of those here today. Jot this down, though. I'm going to, if you don't mind, uh, during the show uh, right now, sharpen my number two pencil with my Boston pencil sharpener and get her all ready. And you go get that yellow pad number two as well. Let's see here. Yeah, you heard that. That is the crank pencil sharpener. The old uh, Boston, just using it, getting it ready, and uh, getting my pencil ready to jot this down. Michelle Fishbach will uh, be on the show coming up in a couple of weeks, as well as uh, congressman now, I guess, Brad Finstead from the 1st Congressional District. Both have uh, races, uh, as well as Dean Phillips and all the members of the House of Representatives, obviously, coming up on November 8th. But uh, we're looking for Fishbach and Finstead, uh, both coming on on a couple of separate shows in the coming weeks. So jot that down. Make sure you don't miss that uh, as as well. I want to bring on the show now, though, uh, Dean Phillips, congressman from the 3rd Congressional District. And... We're going to talk about the Democratic Party and some of uh, its its new ways. It, Dean knows that I was a lifelong Democrat for most of my life uh, and uh, have seen the party, in my judgment, leave me uh, from where I was. And there are a number of people who have felt that way. Frankly, I think it's the only way that, that Donald Trump ever got elected was because of that sort of sensibility and I want to talk to him a little bit about what the Democratic Party can do to uh, come back to those who want to vote for it, but but just can't, uh, and and have uh, you know have an issue with it. Uh, we're going to talk policy as well, but uh, I want to welcome now Dean Phillips to uh, the Victory Hour. Thanks for coming in today, Dean. It's great to be with a face made for radio. <laughs> Indeed, I can say that about you. <laughs> you absolutely can. I, uh, I, I will say that we're we're in uh, the Parker Daniels Keyboard Studios downtown Minneapolis, and we uh, we are together here uh, today to to bring you the show. And it's great to see Dean. We're able to show him around our offices a bit and uh, reconnect. I want to start by talking about some policy issues and the manner in which the Democratic Party feels best to handle them. Let's talk about the economy first. Inflation has surged uh, 13% up. And for inflation, that is a ton since Joe Biden took office. And by the way, since the Democrats took control of the United States Senate they had control of the House already, but they have had control during this surge of inflation of both houses as well as the presidency. Inflation has gone up every month since Biden took office. Stagflation now is being discussed openly and broadly, and that results from inflation while having a stagnant growth over at least two quarters, and we're now approaching a third quarter. And the unemployment rate is always the lagging indicator. It has not yet 
increased substantially the unemployment rate. In fact, uh, by some recent uh, indicators, it has gone down uh, somewhat. But it is a lagging indicator. And boy, once the unemployment rate starts to go up and you've got inflation and stagnant growth, you really do have trouble. It's easy to say, well, Joe Biden's not to blame. Uh, you can't blame the president or policies. These things happen. But if you're going to take credit, as Bill Clinton did for a wonderful economy, and as Donald Trump did for a very strong economy during his uh, uh, first three years, at least, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, creating growth in three years that Obama couldn't create in eight years, doesn't it raise the question of whether liberal and democratic fiscal policy really works when you're dealing with uh, the uh, economy? What do you say to that? Well, well, what I say, Andrew, is that, you know, of course, there's fiscal policy and there's monetary policy. I've always believed that uh, we... uh, accrue too much credit to a president uh, for good economic times, and we condemn uh, presidents for bad ones when I really do believe uh, that many of those levers are outside of their control, Democrats and Republicans. I do believe that uh, the central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, using the federal funds rate uh, has a far greater impact on growth and contraction, of course, now trying uh, quite aggressively to contract the economy to address inflation. But, but let, me, let me speak what, what I believe to be the truth. Uh, and that is, had there been a Republican in the White House, Republican Senate, Republican House, we would still have inflation. Uh, I do believe, as Larry Summers indicated was likely, uh, that some of the stimulus plans, the American Rescue Plan probably in particular, probably added 150, 200 basis points perhaps uh, to United States inflation. I think that's fair to say. If you look at a snapshot uh, of the OECD countries and inflation right now, the United States is mid-pack. That does not mean this is not painful. It is terribly painful for Americans, uh, probably will be uh, for some time to come. But if we Democrats and Republicans were to be comprehensively objective, I think we should point to a pandemic uh, as the starting point. And what we do now moving forward to get us out of it is the fundamental question. And I might say this, when we were faced with uh, a very unenviable decision, whether to invest heavily in a stimulus package, which we ended up doing, uh, or to do much less, which some of my conservative colleagues were arguing was the right path. We were facing two decisions, either put money in people's pockets, which we did. I think uh, there were $4 trillion more in people's pockets uh, in the year, the first year of the pandemic versus the year before. More money in people's pockets, and then supply chains got choked up. They closed. So you have high demand, people not going out and eating in restaurants, not going to movie theaters, not traveling, a lot more disposable income. And then the very products that they wanted to buy, automobiles, televisions, refrigerators, uh, in very short supply. Of course, we're going to see skyrocketing inflation. Uh, My personal decision to vote for that plan was predicated on the fact that based on the economists with whom I spoke, they indicated that it is a lot easier to cool down an economy that is experiencing inflation than it is to stimulate an economy that has high unemployment and massive business closures. So very objectively, that is why how I looked at it. Uh, I don't think President Biden deserves all the blame, uh, nor would I have said that if things were booming right now, he would deserve all the credit. 
and I, I'd like to look at a little bit of objectivity. Let me also add to this. The U.S. dollar is up 17% uh, based on the a, a foreign basket of currencies. That indicates that foreign investors increasingly see the United States as the safest place to deploy capital. I believe that is actually because of our fiscal policy uh, and our peer countries are struggling a whole lot more than we are right now. So two things can be true at once. High inflation, yes, we have to get it under control. Uh, affording the blame to just one party, one president, I think, frankly, is uh, not being objective. Well, fair enough, because Donald Trump uh, did pass a trillion-plus-dollar plan when he was president that poured into the economy. Uh, but since then, we continued to do it, and, uh, you know, not shocking where we sit. I talked about it at the time we uh, decided to do it. It's a tough one uh, in the face of a pandemic, though. It certainly is not an easy vote or policy issue uh, to take. Uh, but uh, many on the Republican side uh, did not want to close the economy, wanted to keep it open, have people grow and continue to hold their jobs rather than closing things down. Maybe that would have had public health ramifications. We, we never will know. We're going to take a very short break here on the Victory Hour. And again, I want to thank you for joining us. Very interesting discussion today with Congressman Dean Phillips. We're having Democrat from the 3rd Congressional District. We're going to talk policy. We're going to talk about energy prices. We're going to talk about uh, crime. We'll talk about immigration. You know, the issues that you're all out there talking about if we head into the upcoming midterm elections. Stay with us as we'll be right back. Again, Congressman Dean Phillips joining us on the Victory Hour today. Go to ParkerDK.com. Stay tuned. the Victory Hour. We're joined today by Congressman Dean Phillips, Democrat from the 3rd Congressional District here in the great state of Minnesota. And we are talking about the Democratic Party and uh, whether they can take credit or not credit. The things that aren't going so well, they don't want to take a lot of credit for. <laughs> but uh, we'll see when they want to start to take some credit. We'll we'll see. But that's politics. You, you see it. I mean, heck, Donald Trump took credit for every uh, little or big thing that happened great, and he ran from anything that didn't go so well. Um, but uh, let's turn. We we were just talking about inflation on the other side of the break, Dean, and and I appreciate your comments as it relates to that. You know, I don't I don't know that we. Uh, we agree. I, I think that the government, in fact, has quite a bit of impact, particularly when they pass enormous pieces of legislation and trillion-dollar spending bills pouring into the economy in a very short order, uh, tri- you know, hundreds of million, billions of dollars, uh, is going to have a, an economic impact, and it is a policy decision uh, that is made. Uh, can I talk, can I can I just uh, yeah sure sure mention I, a couple of things because 
there's no question that during the peak of COVID, these stimulus packages were accretive to inflation. Uh, you know, that that is true. I think it, as I said earlier, 150, maybe 200 basis points, I would I would argue. But if you look at some of the other packages, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, an investment in the United States of America uh, that I think we desperately needed. In fact, I just came from uh, an event out on Lake Minnetonka where some of those $250,000 or so of that package will be used to reconstruct a bridge, saving local taxpayers uh, from tax hikes uh, in so doing. The Inflation Reduction Act, uh, call it what you will relative to the name, but it does reduce the, be- uh, the federal deficit by about $300 billion over 10 years. That's obviously a good thing. Uh, we are The way I look at all of this, Andrew, these packages, are whether they're investments or simply costs. And, of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But I do think that Democrats and Republicans should start coalescing around this notion of investment. You know, I don't believe in a country where we can guarantee equal outcomes, but I do believe in a country where we can make investments to ensure that more people uh, have the opportunity to pursue the outcome that they desire. Well, and, and I'll tell you, it's one of the reasons I think we agree about the uh, infrastructure bill. I, I don't think the timing of it was particularly good. Uh, and unfortunately, it might have been one of those things that I, I might have uh, waited on. My conservative fiscal assessment uh, would have probably waited on. But but the bill itself, uh, I think we probably do agree. You know, you had you had Trump. Uh, signing into law a multi-trillion dollar deal. You had Biden signing into law his own multi-trillion dollar deal. Mm -hmm. Then you had the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And then you had the Inflation Reduction Act. And so, you know, we can agree on some of those. The the first one that Trump signed, I don't think he had a choice uh, but to do that. Uh, And I don't know, you know, that was widely agreed upon across the board. The one that Biden signed in was not or signed on to it was it was not. And, you know, uh, following it up with the infrastructure bill, the timing of it is is more uh, the issue for me there. And I and I do respect that. And I want everybody listening to know, too, that uh, as I look at the federal debt and by the way, I was named a, a fiscal hero by the committee for a responsible federal budget because these things matter. Uh, I miss a Republican party that. It was conservative fiscally. Seven trillion dollars were added to our federal debt under the Trump administration. More trillions now under Biden. You're not going to hear me yeah, argue for that. We have lost the political incentives to do what the country really needs and, now. And you know who was one of the more con- most conservative fiscal policy policymakers was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, the last president of which I'm aware, who had a balanced budget. That's right. So I, th- this is where I do wish Democrats and Republicans could come together. Uh, and recognize the perils uh, of a national debt now that exceeds $31 trillion, which, by the way, yes, we have the capacity uh, for, but what is what we're struggling with is the $500 billion or so in debt service, which, yeah. mean, which means that Congress, no matter what party you uh, support, Congress has fewer and fewer dollars to allocate at its discretion. Uh, uh, our, our social it's security, being up. it's being chewed up. Yeah. And that is our greatest challenge. It's gas out the tailpipe. Exactly. Speaking of that, let's talk about uh, energy prices. Um, Joe Biden comes into office. First thing he does is he cancels drilling licenses, limiting domestic production, halting the Alaskan pipeline, and P 
people say, well, it didn't have an immediate impact, so that didn't affect the gas prices because that was something that would happen in the future. But the reality that does affect current prices is future supply can have an impact on future prices as planning mechanisms go into place for how things are um, hit the supply and demand market. Second thing is he did, he choked off fossil fuel uh, production with regulation. Now, you know, the Democratic Party believes strongly in a green world and uh, the Green New Deal, et cetera. And so this is consistent with the Democratic Party's mantra in that regard. But what it does is it slows uh, the energy sector. And energy sector regulation has a real impact on prices at the pump. Thirdly, uh, the rhetoric that came out of Washington and continues to as it relates to the Green Deal, as it relates to fossil fuels, as it relates to energy and oil, creates an entire environment that results in discouraging investment. And all of that affects gas prices. Gas prices and inflation going up through the roof. Who does that affect the most? It affects our most disadvantaged. It affects those in minority communities. It affects those uh, who both have cars or need to get somewhere and the costs go up and they can't afford it. Um, What do you say? I mean, what do you say about the effect of Democratic Party policy on energy prices? What I say, Andrew, is first, some of the policies to which you just referred, some of the executive orders or decisions Uh, While indeed they do have some impact on current production and perhaps certainly future uh, production, I don't believe those policies are having much of an effect at all on the current price of gasoline in the United States, which is a function of an international marketplace. Uh, And you will often hear me say two things can be true at once. You know, on the far right, uh, a lot of a lot of conservatives argue, let's just pump more. That's the answer on the far left. You have Green New Deal. Let's all go to EVs tomorrow. Let's all do solar and wind. You know, I'm a little bit different than the left and the right. I believe that two things can be true at once, and I think we should be doing both. And I think in the near term, yes, we should be drilling more. Yes, we should ensure there are pipelines that are safe that can transport the petroleum to refineries that can produce gasoline (laughs) for Americans. Uh, Most people probably know we are pretty energy independent right now. We are producing about as much oil as we ever have before. Uh, We are at the whims, though, of an international marketplace. And I hope we do talk about Saudi Arabia and Russia. They are colluding. They are using petroleum as weapons against the United States of America. So that's not surprising, not surprising at all. So we should cover that because I would argue that the approach we should be taking is, yes, let's produce more as much as we can right now. But we should complement that with policies that wean us off of reliance on either Russia or Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, which and I would argue we do not directly rely on them. But Europe does. And if we want to maintain a Western alliance of strength and unity, we have got to be supportive uh, in opposing what OPEC just did in, in a colluding fashion, if you ask me. And I think America should be leaders in alternative energies. I think it will be accretive to our economy, uh, more, unemplo- more employment. And I think we should follow the lead of states like Texas, one of the most progressive energy-producing states in the country. And lastly, I just had a dinner at my house in Washington with three Republicans, three Democrats, and we talked very specifically about how we can push for permitting reform to reduce the regulations 
ensure that we can improve our distribution network, transmission network, so that we have a much more robust grid in this country, and ensure that we can provide more domestically produced energy in the near term, while complementing that with positive environmental policy and green energy for the future. That's what we should be doing. You know, it, there's a lot of that that I, uh, that I agree with. And uh, Dean Phillips, we're talking to congressman for the 3rd Congressional District here in the state of Minnesota. And this Democrat uh, is, is one in the Democratic Party that, listen, while we uh, don't agree on everything and certainly disagree on a number of things, you can work with. And working across the aisle is perhaps more important now than it ever has been. And we need to do that. On the other side of this break, we're going to finish our discussion on energy prices and energy policy. We're going to talk a little bit about whether it was appropriate for Joe Biden to go over and, uh, you know, beg OPEC to uh, adjust their uh, prices go to our enemies, and uh, now it appears he might even be talking to Venezuela as well, whether it was appropriate and whether we're headed down the right path of depleting our energy reserves and our surplus, which is now at more than a 40-year low. We're going to be right back to talk with uh, Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips about his thoughts in that regard and the direction of the Democratic Party. You are listening to the Victory Hour. I'm Andrew Parker. While we're on this short break, go to MyPillow.com. You know, if you pick up some pillows, take a look at the sheets, too. And the robe, top quality stuff. I know because I have it. MyPillow.com. Put in the offer code VICTORY for up to 66% off. 66%. That's a lot. Victory. That's our special code here on the show. You, me, yeah, the group. You know, you listen each week. We're going to be right back. Stay with us. You are listening to the Victory Hour. And we welcome you all once again. Thank you for staying with us for this fascinating discussion with Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips. Uh, common sense, Congressman, and, and one that, you know, uh, I wish that he were more conservative. I, you know, I, I, I say that to him all the time uh, on, on certain issues. But at the same time, we need more like him in the Democratic Party. Uh, Because, you know, generally, you should be able to work with somebody like Dean Phillips. And we need uh, more conservatives on the other side. I think, you know, some would say uh, in the Republican Party to work with. But. Of course, I view the Republicans as always having their arms wide open, waiting for someone to come, kind of like Israel, come and make peace with us. You know, we're ready here. (laughs) Rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're talking to Dean about uh, energy. I just wanted to finish our uh, discussion of energy policy and uh, 
you know, some of the things that I disagreed with with and continue to disagree with Joe Biden's handling of energy policy entirely by by basically destroy trying to destroy and and really making an enemy out of our domestic energy providers through regulation and policy decisions like shutting down pipelines and drilling and drilling licenses. Uh, but in addition, at the same time, he's going to our enemies and saying, oh, please help us while he's shutting down our local operations. And that affects workers, too. They lose their jobs. A lot of people lost their jobs early on in the Biden administration who were working on the pipelines up there in Alaska, et cetera. Uh, but uh, in addition, he's depleted the energy reserves here because we're just not drilling like we did. Uh, and so... We're at a 40-year low. Uh, do you t- tend to uh, agree or disagree on that, uh, Dean, with Joe Biden's policies in that regard? Well, yeah, look, at I, I think we might have a difference of opinion, again, back to how much control a, an American president really has. Well, he has control whether he goes well, over to Saudi Arabia. No, well, no let, let me talk about domestic policy first. You know, the I believe in the last uh, quarter, the five large Western petroleum companies – reported net income of $60 billion in one quarter. That's 90 days. Not revenue, that's profit. Uh, There are thousands of outstanding federal leases available to all the petroleum companies that hold those leases uh, to drill if they wish. Uh, We all know that it takes a massive capital investment to drill for oil. Uh, We do not live in a socialist country. We live in a capitalist country. These are free enterprises that make decisions Uh, based on their shareholders' interests, whether or not to invest uh, or contract. And right now, in a very uncertain market, in a market in which petroleum uh, uh, producers don't know if uh, barrels will be $100, $200, or back down to 50, they're not investing a lot of capital. Of that $60 billion, that is not being invested in drilling. That's their prerogative. But they were investing when Trump was president. They were investing more, and by the way, uh, pipelines. Most of my colleagues wholeheartedly op- oppose pipelines. My argument is we need them in the near term. Let's make sure these are the last pipelines we have to construct. But yes, we do have to. It's not just the drilling, Andrew. And I think everybody listening probably knows this. Uh, it needs to be distributed. It needs to be refined. And then it needs to be transported. And by the way, let's say we're drilling more oil than we need, which by the way, we do. We're an exporter of oil. And of course, for-profit free enterprise companies drilling for oil in the United States, uh, when the markets are uh, when the market's good for them, high price of oil, they're exporting, they're making money, and that I think is a domestic issue that at least to make people aware of relative to our foreign energy policy. That's where I really do have concerns right now. Uh, the way that we have managed, or frankly, uh, have not managed uh, our relationships uh, using American strength, economic and otherwise. Uh, is disappointing. And I believe that's actually a failure of Democratic and Republican leadership for many, many generations now, particularly as it relates to the Middle East. Oil has driven our foreign policy, uh, and it has never been more integral to our foreign policy than it is right now. Uh, I, in, I, I implore that people pay close attention to the Russian cooperation with the Saudis. Uh, it is about more than oil. Uh, it is a linchpin relationship uh, that we should all be paying attention to right now. Uh, because the implications, much less to the United States right now, but to Europe, uh, are dramatic uh, and quite dangerous. 
And that's where I do believe we need a much more aggressive, robust, and frankly, sometimes punitive foreign policy than we're executing right now. And with that, I would agree with you. I think we have to uh, take it up a notch. Well, I, you know, I, I just harken back. I'm a simple guy, and we're going to move on to crime here in a second. But uh, uh, I, I look back to when we were declared energy independent because we were pumping enough energy and fuel for this country's use uh, when Donald Trump uh, was president. I hearken back to the Abraham Accords where he was able to bring Israel and Arab nations together in peace, and we were on the march to additional countries signing on. Discussions had even been had with Saudi Arabia. I bring it up because of that. It, it, it could have been a precursor. Everything halted, stopped, and I think that is a, uh, in comparison to the Trump administration, from a policy perspective, uh, a failure and a, and a great, um, oh, a kind of ju- disjointed policy by the Biden administration. Uh, yeah, let, let me since. say, I, I do believe the Trump administration clearly was more friendly to the petroleum industry, no question. Uh, but I also believe. Uh, and someone can check my facts, but we are pumping about as much oil as ever, and we are still relatively energy independent. We are not needing to import except for geographies and classifications of oil. There are different, there are different so, so why are we depleting the energy reserve? Yeah, the SPR. Well, that's an effort to keep prices lower. And, of course, they've come down considerably. They're ticking back up. Uh, you know, I just got my, I just filled up my tank and it was $3.89. Uh, it's a lot less than it was. It's a lot more than it should be. Uh, but mark my words, no matter who inhabits the White House two years hence, we are going to be subject to these gas pricing spikes, no matter who's in the Oval Office, if we do not wean ourselves from the need uh, for oil moving forward, at least to reduce the need. Well, and, and if we do not, it, look at the oil producing nations around the world, with very few exceptions. They are not just not our friends. They are our arch enemies. And that is going to have serious implications. And the more that Democrats and Republicans argue about who's responsible and the less time we actually invest in creating a foreign policy that addresses these issues, I'm afraid we're not doing it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, There's no doubt. Uh, Another issue that uh, we agree on is that for national security's sake, Mm -hmm. our energy policy is absolutely critical. I believe Donald Trump handled our energy policy extraordinarily well. One of the reasons that I supported his presidency, and I think Joe Biden has handled it the exact flip side of that coin extraordinarily poorly. And it has created national security issues. As you indicate, Dean Phillips, this issue is all about, that is energy. Crime is also a national security. It's a local security issue. And, uh, you know, I want to say about the Democratic Party, another problem and another issue. And it started, in my judgment, with Barack Obama, who had the opportunity to become one of the most unifying presidents in the history of the United States, did the opposite, created division, created the sensibility of racism and brought the whole sense that we have a racist society to the fore and gave it not just a voice, but a megaphone. That was Barack Obama. And since that time, the Democratic Party has taken that issue and created systemic racism as a watchword for our kids to grow up with. That 
police departments are systemically racist, that our society, our American society is systemically racist, that white people are all systemically racist. And this is a mantra of the Democratic Party. How can we survive with one of the major political parties in the United States having that view? You know, Andrew, I, I think this begins with just a basic understanding of our of our history, which everybody understands. We enslaved uh, African Americans uh, for a long time in our nation's history, and the repercussions of that policy, uh, the multi generational effect that it has had uh, on on Black Americans, uh, is real. Uh, you've never walked in their shoes, nor have I, uh, but I can empathize with what that has done, the harm that has caused. Uh, tens of millions of Americans uh, for many generations. And again, two things can be true at once as it relates to public safety policing. Uh, I have the utmost in respect, appreciation, affection uh, for the men and women who protect us every single day at not just risk to themselves uh, that creates fear for their own families, uh, but increasingly subjects them to horrifying threats uh, and disrespect in the streets. And believe me, as a member of Congress, that's playing out in legislative bodies as it is in police departments and first responders all around the country. The other thing that can be true is there are plenty of examples, particularly of people of color, being mistreated in certain, uh, by certain police departments in parts of the country uh, by police officers. And we saw it in the most horrifying way right here in Minneapolis. That has transformed this community, I think, for some time to come. Uh, and we have a choice to make right now. I am a proud supporter of police as a Democrat. Uh, I was endorsed by the MPPOA, the Police Officer, Police, uh, Police and Peace Officers Association, in 2020. Uh, intend to earn that endorsement again, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, I do ride-alongs with police officers. I convene my police chiefs every quarter, and when I ride with officers, I see firsthand what's working and what's not working, uh, and that has informed my uh, work in Washington to actually introduce the, the Pathways to Policing Act. Well, which- I can tell you, being a Democrat, Dean. Despite your uh, good works in that regard, it makes it difficult for you. Much more difficult. Why? Because while the city of Minneapolis burned, Democrats were talking about, in this city, we're talking about systemic racism. They were talking about the police department is to blame. They were talking about police officers as being uh, racist and defunding the police. And that is a political party message that is very Dangerous, And now they're putting up in Hennepin County some left-wing Hennepin County prosecutor candidate who is dangerous, dangerous as heck. We're going to end up like San Francisco, L.A., New York. We're going to be right back to talk to Dean Phillips. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little about the Hennepin County attorney race where the Democrats have got this far left-wing nut job, Mary Moriarty, and it's not going to help me to call her that. But if she wins this race, we are in trouble in terms of crime in uh, Hennepin County. And we're going to talk, if we have time, which I think uh, we will, about uh, a little bit of uh, immigration policy with our friend uh, Dean Phillips. Congressman Dean Phillips joins us this week on the Victory Hour. We're going to be right back, so you make sure to stay with us for our final segment. We are back. It's the Victory Hour. I'm Andrew Parker, and we're here with Congressman Dean Phillips of the 3rd Congressional District. We've been talking policy issues. We're talking crime. 
And I'll tell you, the, I, I, I've been haranguing Dean about the Democratic Party and what they've done to this country as it relates to crime and the crime rate and the crime waves. And now they're coming through because we got an election coming up and saying, oh, no, we fully support the police and they're all wonderful, this and that. But kids have been raised to be afraid of cops as racists. Kids in our communities. What happens when they become older and, they, and they've got this attitude about cops? Uh, it's not, uh, not healthy. Dean, what do you say about, uh, the crime issue and whether there are any policy changes that we can make because violent crime is going through the roof here. It is. And, and let's acknowledge it. And uh, we're all in this together. I, I live in this community. You do. Everybody listening is concerned and we deserve to be, and I'm sick of it. Uh, what I want to do is focus on solutions uh, we can litigate the reasons uh, at any time. But I, I, I'll tell a little story. Yesterday, I stopped by the Bloomington Police Department, uh, brought a box of donuts to say thank you, uh, greeted the officers in front of their roll call, and had a nice visit with Chief Hodges, who advised me yesterday uh, that Bloomington crime is at a four-year low right now, which I might, I believe comes as a surprise, certainly to me and probably a lot of people listening. And I asked him, what, how? What, what does he do differently uh, to, uh, to do that. And he said, well, uh, my officers know that I have their back. He said that when someone flees us in their car, we chase them down. Uh, and he said that when someone breaks the law in Bloomington, we're going to arrest them. It sounds pretty simple. Uh, but I want to also say it does start with police. We're not going to arrest our way to public safety, but it does start with police. It starts with supporting them. Absolutely. We need prosecutors. I know you just mentioned this. We need prosecutors, not just in Hennepin County, Ramsey County, all throughout the country that do their jobs and keep criminals off the street. But we got to complement that with public policy. That means rehabilitating prisoners. We have one of the worst recidivism rates in the entire world. We put people in prison for three years, five years. We let them out. They're hardened. They, they can't get a job. They go right back to crime. We should be investing in them. We also must start investing in juvenile diversion programs. Uh, if we do not find ways to rehabilitate kids, get them back on the right track, provide them some opportunity, uh, we are not doing any of us a service. So once again, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, whatever you might consider yourself, let's stop the nonsense. Let's sit down at the table, ensure that the police are supported, that our prosecutors are doing their jobs, and that we, taxpayers, are investing in programs that go upstream and try to reduce the incidence of crime in a country that is suffering from it. That's so, Dean Phillips, Democrat, 3rd Congressional District. So goes the 3rd, goes Minnesota. Let's talk immigration. Does he also agree that we need to close the border? We have had since March of 2021, and this is according to a Texas report. This is just for the state of Texas. 366 million doses of fentanyl were seized in the state of Texas since March 2021. Criminal arrests over 20,000. That's criminal arrests, not just criminal meaning you have illegally crossed the border. I'm talking about criminal conduct. 308,000 just in that year and a half of apprehensions of folks that have been lawbreakers. Don't we need to shut this border? It is inhumane and unfair to the immigrant population in addition to the citizens of the United States. Don't we need to shut this border down, get the Congress together to develop a law that we can then follow and have a big door open to immigration, but a legal door? 
Thanks for saying that. A big door, but a legal door. Absolutely. Look at our family backgrounds are very similar, Andrew. Our our forefathers and foremothers fled persecution persecution in Europe to come to the country that guaranteed them access, opportunity, safety, and security. And let me tell you that an overwhelming majority, almost everybody crossing the Rio Grande River right now to come to this country has the same aspirations. The fact of the matter is our policy is so misguided and so archaic, again, because of Democratic and Republican administrations for many, many years, that to declare asylum in the United States of America, we force these people, Andrew, to spend $6,000 to pay a a coyote, uh, the Mexican gangs, to bring them across the border where they declare asylum. And then we release them until their case comes. Could be a year, could be two. Some people don't even show up for it at all. What do we do? Use our foreign aid budget to invest in the Northern Triangle countries where we can provide more safety and security. And we should be adjudicating the asylum cases in the countries of origin. Why force these poor families to make that journey? I've been to the southern border twice, Andrew. I've seen the mothers cross the river with their babies. Let's be compassionate. Let's remember what Ronald Reagan said, one of my favorite conservatives. You can go to Australia, you're not going to become an Aussie. You can go to the UK, you're not going to be an Englishman. But you can come to the United States and become an American. That's Dean Phillips, Congressman, 3rd Congressional District. We'll be back next week. You make sure to join us as well. For another great hour, the Victory Hour. Many can be expressed in a single word. Freedom. Justice. Honor, duty, mercy, and hope. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.